Brian Smith here, and welcome to the Dream Path Podcast, where I try to get inside the heads of talented creatives from all over the world. My goal is to demystify and humanize the creative process and make it accessible to everyone. Now let's jump in. Ricardo Fraser is on the show today. Ricardo's path into the arts is a bit different than the other guests we've talked to. Ricardo emigrated from Costa Rica to New York as a child, but he has spent most of his career in the Pacific Northwest, where he has been a pioneer of the music and art scene for decades. Ricardo is currently chairman of the board of directors of the Seattle Theater Group, SDG, which operates multiple historic performance venues in Seattle, including the Paramount and the Moore Theaters. These venues have a special place in my heart because I've seen so many concerts and theater productions there over the last 40 years. I can tell you that these venues form the backbone of the live music and theater scene in Seattle. What makes Ricardo's path so unique is that he got his start at STG cleaning the floors of the Paramount Theater. Over time, he worked his way up within the organization and in the arts community, getting to know every aspect of that business until finally being invited to serve on the board of directors. Ricardo is also Sir Mix-a-Lot's longtime manager, a relationship that has spanned for almost 30 years. You know Mix from iconic rap and hip-hop songs like Baby Got Back and Posse on Broadway. In addition to music management, Ricardo is the co-founder of Zachy Rose Media, a full-service creative agency, production, and entertainment company. In this episode, you will hear Ricardo talk about Zachy Rose's unique approach to artist representation as it relates to the musical and video content created by the agency. Ricardo has worked in conjunction with Universal Music Group, Sony Music, Warner Brothers, and Rick Rubin, as well as the Seattle Arts Commission and numerous other arts organizations in Seattle, helping to make Seattle one of the top music and arts communities in the country. So please enjoy this wide-ranging discussion with Seattle music and arts pioneer, Ricardo Fraser. Thanks for making time for me. Really appreciate you having me in your home and uh, agreeing to talk about your journey. It's my pleasure. Thanks for asking me. I'm wondering, why is he asking me? (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, the, the focus of the podcast has been to talk to people in the arts community and specifically artists who are actively creating after many years and trying to figure out their secrets mm-hmm. to, um, to success. Um, but it's, but I think it's about more than that. It's about humanizing people who don't really seem accessible, whether they're eccentric or they, uh, the way that they got to, they got into their career is a little bit almost like there's a mythology around it, mm-hmm. you know? Um, so I, I try to talk to people in a way that really, um, humanizes the process. Mm-hmm. You know, what are the struggles that this person went through, uh, to do what they're doing? And it, cause I think it takes great courage to aspire to work in the arts and actually to do it, uh, because it's, it's so unconventional. Right. You know, like it's not something that your parents really would be doing cartwheels over if you graduate from high school and you say, guess what I'm doing? Right. Right. (laughs) (laughs) And so that's why, that's why I find this whole topic so fascinating is, is that these people, um, it it, it sounds weird to call it courageous, but I think it is, you know, Mm -hmm. it's a form of personal courage to follow your passion, right. You know, wherever it takes you. Um, so 
let's go back to the Zachy Rose agency. What what is Zachy Rose and and how did that get started? So as I was kind of explaining off mic earlier, L Yl, my business partner, I met him at uh, at Cube when uh, he was an intern, um, and. You know, he said to me, he said to me after we formed this company, he said, you know, the reason I came to you is because when I was an intern, uh, you met me and you treated me like everyone else. You didn't treat me like an intern, you know, he says, and I took note of that. Um, and so he had this idea for a company um, and he called me because he knew I worked in, in music, in the arts. Um, I manage uh, Sir Mix-a-Lot. And he called me and wanted me to listen to his idea. I was like, ah, but you know, I, it would it require me to leave home because I was working out of my home and working mobile, mobily, and 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 I didn't want to sit in an office anywhere. And so um, he called and and asked. We met, we chatted, um, and I just loved his energy. I loved the man and the person that 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 he is. Um, and I just felt a connection to him that I don't feel with a lot of folks, you know. And I really worked a lot on my instincts and 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 just feel and 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 thought and um and so I listened and fig we figured out that we could do this company and would form a company that um, would uh, center around video uh, uh, production um, because we knew content was was king um, and this was about seven seven or eight years ago right when when content wasn't as prolific or people didn't really understand that that's the basis of so many businesses these days so we wanted to create that content and uh uh, uh work with musicians work with artists um highlight their work and figure out a way to get those creatives paid um and so we created a company that would do uh music videos that would do commercials, that would do branding work. And the caveat though, is that we would use music from the, the, the musicians and the, the writers that we were working with in whatever we created. Um, we would use uh, uh, art from those artists in whatever we, we created. And what we created was being monetized. And so we found a way to do something that we love, which was you know being in the arts, creating content, and then, uh, uh, paying artists for their work. Oh, right. nice. Yeah. that must be refreshing for the artists to actually have that type of help. Um, because it seems to be a, a very saturated, um, culture that we have now, right mm -hmm. now in terms of the noise and right. there's, there's so much out there, uh, that it's, it's hard to be seen and heard. Right. Yeah. So is that what you're kind of helping artists to do is to, get their work out there in a way that's going to uh, connect and uh, have a residual uh, payoff. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Because, you know, I mean, the whole idea of a starving artist is not a wonderful thing to me. Right. Right. And loving the art, uh, the arts in the way that I do, um, you know, my goal was to figure out how to help these artists, right, earn an income. And so, yeah, so with Zachy Rose, we're able to do that. We work with uh, with Zillow, we work with Pepsi, we work with the Seahawks, and if you look at any of our commercials, the the or or, or branding work that we do, uh, the music that's in there, it's not pop music. It's music from people that that are unknown. And so when we do the budget, there's a a, a line item there for for music, or a line item there for um, uh, photography 
or something to do with the with the art, right? And so we make sure that uh, folks are being paid, and and we find pleasure in that, really. Right. So when you say you work with Zillow and the Seahawks and and these major companies, um, do you mean that you are creating content for those companies, and then in turn you're using the work of the artists that you manage and uh, represent? Exactly. So okay. we'll sit down with the with the creative team at Zillow. And they're saying, hey, we want to uh, uh, do some branding around um, realtors, right? Um, but we want to use an athlete, right? And so we would sit down with them and say, hey, look, we have a relationship with Richard Sherman, Bobby Wagner, maybe Russell Wilson. Um, we'd sit with them and work on the creative, contact the reps of those folks, um, and then, yeah, write, uh, write the script um, and then put the whole production together. Um, and, uh, yeah, deliver a final product that includes, uh, everything that they're looking for, you know, in terms of what points they're trying to hit in the, in these spots. Um, and then, um, yeah. And then we use the artist's work within there and they, Zillow pays us a nice sum of money and we in turn pay the artists, you know, well above market rate for, for their work. Yeah. Well, it seems it seems kind of a, a brilliant symbiosis because my my understanding of the entertainment industry um, and in the creative industry historically has been that you know you may have agencies that represent talent, mm -hmm. but those those agencies are not content creators, right? You know, they're just intermediaries. Exactly. Yeah. So you guys have actually formed a new um, permutation, a new type of company it sounds like i i think so i think it's the way forward for a lot of uh you know if you're interested in supporting the artists you know i think it's a way forward for them because um yeah it'll we create the content so yeah we can dictate what goes where to a, to a large extent you know we still work with the client right um and the client may say we need uh, you know, an instrumental that's 120 BPs and it's, you know, it's uh, electro based or, you know, something that's down tempo. And then we would then look to our, our group of artists, producers, musicians that we work with and then give them that information and they'll create something. And then we go back to, to the client with with exactly that. So it is it is a different approach um, to uh, to dealing with uh, uh, with things. So when you're, you're managing artists, um, are you managing them from the, you know, kind of the conventional understanding of what music managers used to be in terms of helping them book gigs and, you know, wor working with um, record companies to make sure that the royalties are, um, you know, paid out fairly? And, you know, what, what is your role as a manager of an artist? See, there are different tiers of, of uh, management, I think. Um, you know, we generally say management and we think of just what you explained, right? But, but there are different tiers depending on the level of artists you're working with. So, for example, I manage Sir Mix-a-Lot. Mix has been around for 25, 30 years. He's a Grammy-winning uh, uh, recording artist. He's very popular. He's well-known. So part of what I did in the initial phases of working with him is really get him a record deal. So we signed to Rick Rubin's American uh, Recordings, and my job was to go out and find the best situation for him, knowing what he was looking for. Um, he didn't want a label that would dictate to him what he needed to do, um, and Rick gave him the freedom to do what he needed to do. So it was a great relationship. So I got that deal for him, 
And then I cut a publishing deal for him so that he can make and monetize, um, make monies from the songs that he writes over a long period of time, right? So that he has ownership to that. Um, and then I worked with him on uh, video creation and, and just all the business things, right? So so that's one level of artist because Mix is, is very popular, yeah. right? The type of artist that we deal with, that's Zachy Rose and I'll say ZR, is uh, is uh, a different tier of artists, right? Not any less talented, just not as well known, right? Um, and with those folks, what we try to do one is get them paid, get money for their work. We make sure that their their material is uh, is copywritten. Um, we will do uh, uh, sessions in the studio with them so that they can create material that we can then shop to record labels, typically. Um, the music business has changed a lot. So the idea of, you know, shopping to a label or going to an A&R guy is very different now than what it was before. Um, but yeah, we represent them with the, in, in, in the sense that we try to help them get to where they need to go so that their work and their art is sustainable for them from a financial standpoint. Yeah. So how did you make that connection with Rick Rubin? Um, you know, Mix had a deal with Nasty Mix Records years ago, and um, we got out of that situation um, because it was not uh, a good one for him. Uh, went to court, got his masters back, got him all of his material. Um, and then the goal then was to look for uh, a label that would allow him to do what he needs to do um, and then pay him uh, a nice sum of monies. Um, so... You know, life is interesting, man, because there are all these people that come into your life at some point or another. Um, um, Kanye West says, people in your life are seasons, right? And I just love that line, right? Because there are people who stay in your life for forever, right? Right. Um, but for the most part, people come in your life, they're, 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 they're like seasons, right? you know, here, here, they're gone, right? And it changes, right? Um, and I say that to say that I met um, uh, uh, Terry Morgan, uh, who's here from Seattle. Um, and I talked to Terry and I'm like, hey, man, I'm looking for someone to help me get and mix this new deal. He's like, well, you know, I know someone. Here's Kevin Davis's number. And Kevin was an attorney at uh, Garvey, Schubert and Bear. And so I got a hold of Kevin. I told him where I was. And Kevin said, hey, look, uh, this is what we need to do. So we found John Branca who uh, was Michael Jackson's attorney uh, and still is, you know, handles the estate. Um, and so I interviewed probably five different labels looking for a home for Mix. And at the end of the day, it was uh, Rick Rubin that resonated with us both. Yeah, I've, I've seen some documentaries with Rick Rubin uh, interviewed and, mm -hmm. and seen some YouTube interviews of, of him and also, of course, followed his career, which is just iconic and, and just completely culturally formative and right. amazing. Um, but there seems to be something really special about Rick Rubin in terms of his vision. You know, that's that's what I noticed. Rick was very unconventional in terms of, um, yeah, his thought process, um, in terms of just his, his being. Um, and it was funny because he flew into Seattle, <clears throat> and I can be so uninformed sometimes, he flew into Seattle. I'm going to meet him at SeaTac. I go to the airport to meet Rick. Um, I don't see him. I see this guy 
with the scruffy beard and some really holy jeans and the dirtiest sneakers ever walking <laughs> by. He's going back and forth. And I didn't Google Rick Rubin. I, you know, this was what, 1991. So um, anyway, so I'm looking for this record exec. When I went to New York, I met Phil Q. He's all dressed up. You know, I met a bunch of other, you know, label execs. They're dressed up. Even if they had their jeans on, they were clean, right? And so this guy kept walking by. And finally, I said to him, I says, hey, are you Rick Rubin? And he's like, yeah, you Ricardo? I was like, yeah. I was like, man, you're not who I expected. <laughs> and he just, he just smiled, man. You know, and he's got this beard and he just did this, you know, played with his beard. And we hopped in my car and, uh, and rolled. And so, yeah, he, he was just and is um, one of those human beings that, you know, operates on a different vibration than, than most. Yeah. Right. And that's what I noticed about Rick. And I think, you know, when Mix met him, the creative thoughts and, and what he said to Mix, you know, just made sense. So he signed with Rick back in 91? Uh, we signed in 91 and we put out the first album, Mac Daddy, with Baby Got Back on it in 92. Okay. Yeah. And talk about staying power. I mean, that album is just, yeah. you know, up there in, you know, the upper echelons of, of uh, iconic albums of, yeah. of the 90s and beyond. Yeah, it's, you know, Mix and I look back and we just like, we, we talk about it sometimes. Like, man, did you ever think, you know, when we did that record that, you know, 25, 30 years later we'd be here, uh, you know, and you'd be recognized in an iconic way for that? And he's like, nope, never thought it. None of us thought that. Yeah. So, how did you meet Sir Mix a lot? Um, you know, I I was uh, I was went to school at Evergreen State College, um, and I did an internship at the Paramount Theater with a, a woman who was a director, Joy Hardiman, and a professor at uh, Evergreen. Um, and she lived in the Paramount Theater building. So, the Paramount Theater, three thousand seat performing arts theater. They had studio apartments above, and the apartments were essentially for artists. So, there were some older you know artists who lived in that building and joy being a director being an artist herself lived in that building so i did an internship with her um i met norm volatin ulysses lewis lewis the guys who owned and ran the theater and i met ed Locke, who was the president of nasty mix records who signed mix to a deal and um yeah one thing led to another again people in your life are seasons right um ramon wells who's from costa rica as i am um, said to me, he says, hey, um, you know, we have this hip hop label. We don't have anyone of color, you know, dealing with these artists. Are you interested? I'm like, yeah, I'm interested. Um, and so I met Ramon, met Ed, um, started working with some of their ba baby bands. Um, and then one day I got a call from this guy and I knew who Mix-A-Lot was, but he was being managed by someone else. And so I got a call from him one day. He's like, hey, man. I'm like, yeah, who's this? He's like, it's Mix. <laughs> I was like, Mix, hey, man. Hey, I'm really surprised. Hey, man. <laughs> What's up? And he says to me, he says, yeah, man. So look, uh, Larry, my old manager, you know, uh, I just fired him or he quit or whatever. Fuck, you know, I uh, want to know if you want to manage me. And I'm like, uh, hold on. Okay, so let me ask you some questions. So I, I grilled him for about 45 minutes asking because I knew Larry. I knew the Nasty Mix situation. I'd helped them with their baby bands. And my thing was, you know, maybe it's just a spat you had with them. Maybe you don't really want to fire him, man. You really got to think about this. And I think he got frustrated. And finally, he said to me, he says, look, look, okay, if you don't want to do it, I'll find someone else. And I said, no, 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 no. It's not that I don't want to do it. I just want to make sure this is what you want to do and that I can help you. 
right? And so that's how I, I met him. I'd seen him in the office maybe once before. I went by a video that he shot for my hoopty. I stayed maybe 10 minutes, and I was just about going about my own business. And so that call was really transformative for me because, um, <clears throat> you know, that set me on the path in the arts um, that I'm on, that I'm currently on. Right. Well, I mean, how did you even know how to be a manager at that point? I mean, I imagine, how old were you when, when he made that call? It's probably 23. So 23 years old, you're just a kid. Mm -hmm. And what, what was your perceived skill set? And what was the barrier to actually becoming competent as a manager at that point? You know, what was interesting in, in terms of my path, and I, I go back to my dad being a musician back in Costa Rica, right? Um, and really just sitting on that stage with him at five, six, and seven, right? I have clear memories of sitting with him while he played. He's an amazing guitarist. Um, and I think the, the idea of music was built into me um, through his creative process and creative life. Um, and so I've always loved the arts, right? Even as I pursued a career as an environmental scientist, right? At Evergreen? At Evergreen, yeah. Yeah, yeah. right? Um, and so the arts was always back here. And I knew I had to, I knew I didn't want to be broke, right? So, and my mom's always like, you know, get an education, get a good job, blah, blah, blah. You know, the typical stuff, right? Love her, love her to death, right? And so while I pursued that, those earnings, I always dabbled in some form of fashion in the arts. And so, yeah, so it was always, it was always in me. And, and I started reading books. Um, there's a book called This Business of Music that was the Bible of the music industry at that time. And it talked about uh, record business. It talked about publishing. It talked about intellectual property. It just gave you uh, uh, a prescription for how to navigate in the music business. And I lived with that book for 18 months, just reading it back and forth, cover to cover, because I loved the idea of working in the, the, the arts, um, particularly in music. Um, I couldn't sing. Um, I can't play any instruments, right? But again, that love for, for music and the arts was just instilled in me from a young age. So I just kept trying to figure out how can I do, what can I do, right? And meeting artists and meeting musicians and seeing their struggles and seeing that they didn't understand the business, you know, I just pursued that path. It's like, I'm going to do this work, yeah. right? Um, and so by the time I met Mix, I was well-versed <clears throat> from a, a book perspective on, on the business. I'd met some people <clears throat> who worked with the group Pleasure out of Portland. I helped uh, him with some publishing stuff, and I was just helping people generally. And then, um, and then Mix called, and it was like, okay, now you're in the big time, man. you got to really apply this stuff. And again, Terry Morgan helped me. Um, uh, Kevin Davis helped me. Uh, Ulysses Lewis helped me. Uh, Sid Clark. There were just a bunch of people who came in my life and 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 were there that I could ask questions to. I could, you know, reference things and and they helped me really understand the business. So by the time Mix called me, I think I was ready for it. Yeah, and it, it sounds like you had you were completely um, open to making connections and making connections from other connections 
and talking to people and listening and learning and being humble. Yeah. Um, and it, it, it just feels like, I mean, your story feels like a very organic way to get into the music industry. You know, you're, you're recognizing mm -hmm. that you don't, you don't have musical talent per se, but you love the arts and, um, you found a place in that world, mm -hmm. you know, just by perseverance and, and passion. Yeah, I think I think that's right. Yeah, you know, and 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 I think when you pursue your passion, and when I talk to young people, I talk about that. You know, you pursue your passion because the universe then opens up opportunities for you, right? Things that you can't even imagine would happen, or holes that you know seem filled. All of a sudden, it's vacant, and you can you can step into that place, right? So, I pursued my passion, and as I as I lived it. Right. Again, the universe opened up paths for me, brought people into my life, allowed me to do what I'm doing today. Right. Yeah. So did you make any as you look back on your time managing Sir Mix a lot, which is still happening today, but mm -hmm. early days of managing Mix, um, what were some mistakes that you made, if you can think of any, that you you know, if you could go back and give yourself advice you know, mm -hmm. to handle those situations differently. Uh, do you have any examples to talk about today? I think I think the biggest mistake, and I talked to him about it, right? It's a, I think it's a big mistake. Um, and if I could go back and do it, I would do it differently. Um, we, we got, when we filed a lawsuit against Nasty Mix and we won that whole judgment and we received his back catalog, there were two albums that he'd done uh, prior to the Mac Daddy album with Rick Rubin. It was Swass and Seminar, right? And both were a million copy sellers, right? And so the deal that I did with Rick for him included those two records, right? So at that time, back in 1990, we took, uh, I'm sure he won't mind me saying that, we took about $700,000 $700, from Rick, um, We, which is all recoupable, which means you have to pay it back. It's not a gift, Right, it's an advance. It's an advance. Yeah, okay. Right, um, and so we took about seven hundred thousand bucks, and uh, we we're making the new record. But included in that, we gave him the rights to those two earlier albums, right? Mm -hmm. And the rights in perpetuity. Ah, uh, right. Okay. Right now, if I were super savvy back then, I would have done the deal. I would have given him license those two records to him, so that mix would still own the masters to those records right and he we got a sweet deal in terms of uh, uh royalties but you know he would be making a lot more money today if he owned the masters he owns the publishing we get paid handsomely from that but that's one deal i would have done differently so the the mistakes that you make you learn from obviously and yeah. and mix it sounds like is is a loyal guy and is not going to um, hold a grudge over these types of things. It sounds like. And yeah, I think we're we're both young, you know, and and I'm really had no experience in that arena. And part of it, we relied on um, you know our attorneys, um, and um, you know, not one said, "Hey, do a licensing deal, not a excuse me, not a deal where Rick will own the masters." Yeah, he'll get paid handsomely, but he will own the master. So, you know, so I don't think 
and Mix and I, we we're, we're honest with each other. We both were like, yeah, we just didn't fucking know, man. Right. You know, and he's like, yeah. So I don't think he holds me accountable for that yeah. because he didn't know, I didn't know. Um, it was later when we started working with the presidents of the United States of America and we're talking to Chris Ballou and Dave Dieterer and they were talking about getting their uh, masters back from Sony that I was like, oh, shit. <laughs> you start to forensically go back through your old deals and, exactly yeah exactly man so so how did that how did the connection with the presidents of the united states of america happen i mean talk, another iconic 90s band you know yeah in, and, and very seattle specific right yeah. right you know i mean seattle was rocking back in the in the 90s man early 90s you yeah. know to mid 90s to mid 90s or just a lot of musical energy here lots of places to play um, you know, and so we were just in that circle group of, of, uh, artists. We were the, the only hip hop or rap artists. Um, but we we're all friends. We saw each other in different places. We saw each other at the American music award at the Grammys and so on and so forth. And then I knew, uh, Susan, um, Susan Silver who managed, um, uh, a number of those groups, um, and, um, Kelly Curtis, um, and, um, Kelly Curtis of Pearl Jam. Pearl Jam, yep. yeah. Um, uh, through Nicole Vandenberg uh, and her PR agency. And so we were always somewhere connected. Even if we weren't immersed in each other's lives, there was there were connections there. And uh, I had a good friend, Archie O'Connor. Love him to death. Uh, he and I formed a company. And um, it was kind of like a management company as well. Um, and uh, he knew the presence. And he was like, you know what would be great, man? I'm like, what? He's like, if Mix and the Presidents did a song together, I was like, oh, shit, great <laughs> idea, man. So we put that together, he and I, mostly him, uh, reaching out to uh, Chris Ballou. Um, and then we sat down with them, with the Mix, and we were like, yeah, we could do a group. Yeah, we could make some great songs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, yeah, we sat down, talked about it, and then they started uh, working on some stuff. Oh, that's so know? cool. And worked on a, a great, what I think is probably one of the best albums that has not ever been released really yeah so yeah why is that um you know i think i think there were some creative differences one in that uh jason finn my guy um uh drummer he didn't want to play to a click track and mix was like you gotta play to a click track man and jason's like oh hell no i don't play to no fucking click, click track <laughs> so they're just little little stuff man and then we everyone went off to do their own thing again you know so we hung out for a couple of years they went on a tour a little mini tour um and that was really really cool um and uh yeah just one of those things it just kind of fell off our radar and we found that mix was doing his next record and they were doing a new record and and um, yeah, so we've got the material and we keep talking about mixing it and, and putting it out. Yeah. But it was a fun, fun record um, because they're both fun acts. Yeah. Right. So. Yeah. So much charisma and and uh, and personality. Yeah. In those uh, two acts. Yeah. And when you see them perform, it really comes across, man. So I'm really surprised it didn't go any further than uh, than it did. Um yeah, but I think I think priorities changed, and that was it. Yeah, yeah. So, so when someone like Mix um, wants to work on an album, how do you get involved in that process? Are are you just helping out with the business aspects, or are you brought in 
and creatively in other ways. You know, let's let's talk about the Mac Daddy record for Rick Rubin with Baby Got Back on it. Um, what, what happens generally is Mix has his own studio that he built. So he arranges, he records, he solders everything, he put everything together. Um, and it's uh, in one of the wings at his house. And so he just goes in and creates stuff. And he, he'll say to me, hey, I'm working on this new record. I'm like, hey, very cool. And then he'll say, do you want to hear this track? I'm like, sure. So he'll play me things just the music or look i went out and i got this this car driving by the house man and i i amplified it this way and i dropped some dbs here and blah blah, blah. and he'll play just a car freaking driving by for me and he's going to use it in a song yeah. and so i i'm a sounding board for him i guess essentially and uh so with the with the mac daddy album that that was my role he'd call me and play me stuff and i'd be like hey that's cool or or, you know, I don't like this or what have you. I don't think I had any influence on him. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, but you know, he would call and ask. Right? Yeah, well, I mean, it sounds like you're you're a producer, but you're sort of off the record producer or informal because you're not actually um, influencing power to, you know, affect the sound. But, you know, you're giving feedback. Yeah, I wouldn't even go as far as calling myself a producer. I'm, I'm, I'm a... Uh, uh, I don't know. He bounces stuff off of me, right? It's, yeah. it's like sounding board. I'm a sounding board, essentially, is what it is. Right. You know. Um. Uh. Yeah. I would. I would. Yeah. I would do disservice to real producers by saying I'm a producer, man. So, so. did you know when it, it sounds like you got into the music business pretty young, and that you really started from the ground floor, yeah. um, and and literally cleaning the ground floor at the yeah, Paramount. The Paramount. Yeah. I mean, um. Did did you ever doubt, given that given your education at Evergreen mm-hmm. and in the direction that that would have taken you if you would have gone that way, um, did you ever have any doubt about whether you were in the right place and doing the you know doing what you're supposed to be doing in this universe? Uh, never any doubt, you yeah. know, because again, it's it's what I was passionate about, right? Um, and it's in my spirit, right? It's in my soul, right? Um, it's it's just in me so you know i just i just i'm a feeling human being right and so so you know everything felt right even when things were difficult it felt right you know and i i talk sometimes about um other career opportunities because after i left evergreen i went on to get a master's in information uh technology systems and i was over at microsoft a few times to see if i wanted to work there um, you know, and, and I, I went to Cairo, uh, to see if I wanted to work, uh, in radio at, at Cairo. I was at, uh, King, I was at KRAB back in the days, uh, a public radio station. Um, and, and, you know, the Microsoft thing was interesting because I, it just didn't feel right, you know, and I'm not knocking, you know, folks who work in the industry, but for me, it felt really sterile. Yeah. Um, and um, I didn't I looked around. I didn't see happy people, um, <laughs> That's you key. know, yeah. and I was like, do I is this who I want to be? And yeah. the answer was no. Um, so I chose my path um, early on. And, and, you know, as I do in life, you know, you, you deal with what comes. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so so and then the environmental stuff, you know, it's like I am environmentally conscious and I do what I can you know, in my daily living and in, in, in teaching my kids how to be environmentally conscious, um, how to care about the environment, how to take care of this earth. 
Um, you know, so I'm I'm comfortable with 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 my choices. Right. Yeah. You don't have to necessarily work in in, in the environmental protection industry to right. yeah to feel like you're making a difference. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. Oh, Absolutely. Right on. So. So how did you get involved in the Seattle Theater Group? Uh, STG. So I tell you, I, I worked in that building uh, when I was a college student uh, on the cleanup crew, cleaning mm -hmm. up the theater. Um, and <laughs> and uh, just kept an eye on what went on over there. And um, I joined the Seattle Arts Commission. Um, I chaired that for a little while. Um, I got on the Four Culture Board. Um, through my good friend uh, Vivian uh, Phillips, uh, she worked for Mayor Shell. Uh, she worked with Greg Nichols, the former mayor, and she was like, you know, there aren't many black men in the doing the kind of work that you do in the arts, right? Um, and you can be a really good role model, a good powerful voice, um, you know, and you should uh, join the commission. You should be on the four culture board you should really get more involved in in the seattle art scene and i was like okay sure right <laughs> at one point i was on five or six boards right i went overboard right <laughs> it's like yeah i can do everything right um and then uh at one point she said to me you should be on the stg board and that was i think nine years ago um maybe 10 now and i was like oh the paramount board she's like yeah so i she set up a lunch with uh, Josh LaBelle, the executive director. Um, I think Greg Molnar, who was the president at, the, at, that, at that time of the board. Um, and I met with those guys and we talked and I was like, okay, you know, this would be cool. I could, I could do this. I love the theater. I know the history there. I spent many days in the, in the dungeon, in the basement, you know. Um, I lived in the building. Um, I loved the work that STG was doing as far as their educational work. People think it's just about concerts, but they do so much more um, with their education programs that reaches into communities, deals with young people, deals with people with Parkinson's, uh, you know, incubates uh, write, workshops for writers, uh, for dancers. And, and so that work, I was like, okay, yeah, this is, this is really good. It's not about the concerts. It's about your education programs. Yeah. the things that you do and you're giving back in the community. And so they asked me to join the board and I was like, okay, I'll, I'll do that. So I've been on the board, like I say, nine or 10 years now. I've served as the board president um, for two years and I'm now the chairman of the board for the next two years. And I just think it's ironic. Don King used to say only in America, right? <laughs> right? Do you remember that? I remember. Only in America, yeah. right? And so being, being a, guy from, a, a guy from Costa Rica, man, who migrated to the U.S., lived in New York, traveled west, right? Um, you know, uh, went to unconventional college, um, you know, um, work at the cleanup crew at this theater to come back and then be on the board and then be the president and then be the chairman. I'm, sometimes I, I just marvel, man, but I don't do that often. But it's like, really, when you think about it, it's, it's, it's a good journey, you know? Yeah. It is an incredible journey. I mean, to go from Costa Rica to New York to to Seattle, um, and then start from from the ground floor and become uh, so influential, and and that's I think what um, artists and people in the arts community really want ultimately is mm -hmm. to have a voice, right, Absolutely. and to be heard and to be seen. Mm -hmm. And here you are um, dealing with 
dealing with parts of the art commu- arts community that are probably uh, n- neglected, like the education and um, the workshops and mm-hmm. the things that you you discussed. But they're so important to the infrastructure of a culture. Right. I think. Right. So good work. Thank you, man. Yeah. Thank you. I think the arts is, you know, I keep saying it's the soul of a city. It's the soul of our society. Um, and oftentimes it's ignored, you know, and people don't recognize or acknowledge it. Right. Yeah. So. So what do you think uh, are currently some of the um, biggest challenges for musicians and performance artists in Seattle right now? Um, it is definitely um i think i think housing um is one of our biggest challenges here um how do you keep musicians who don't earn tech uh employee monies um how do you keep them in a city to continue to participate and give what they give um when uh they can't afford rent in particular can't afford to buy a house um you know, um, so the affordability issue, I think, is a big issue for artists in our city. Seattle's becoming unaffordable to, to artists. Unless you're with uh, Amazon making 100K and more a year, you know, you can't, you can't pay uh, $2,000 for a studio or one bedroom right. right, a month. Right. So the affordability issue, we've got to create more affordable housing that really focuses on um, seniors and I think, and, and those in the creative field, otherwise they're going to be all out of the city. Um, you know, uh, businesses will thrive because people are eating out and, and, and it just, it's like the soul is gone. Yeah. Right. So, so you have big tech coming into a city like Seattle and, and, uh, you know, you have this influx of, of money, mm-hmm. um, but that money is not going to necessarily, it sounds like to the artists. Right. You know, they may be spending money on the arts, but it's not it's not helping them enough to have, to allow them to live in the right. city. And what what happens when big tech comes into your city, right? Real estate value goes up and venues disappear. Yeah. Right? So, we've lost a number of iconic venues in uh in uh in Seattle, man. Um the re, I think the Rebar is one that's gone. I could probably name a few. The Showbox is threatened right now. Um uh, what was that bar on Virginia and first that's gone. I mean, it's condos and, mm. you know, retail on the bottom. So venues go away. So the artists have no place to play from a musical standpoint. Um, you know, visual artists, what, what, where do they display their works? I mean, galleries are gone. Yeah. Um, you know, it's all about retail and, and restaurant and, and condos. Right. Yeah. And so, so or do you find that the um, the arts community is kind of being pushed out into areas like, um, you know, Kirkland, Edmonds, and, you know, down south, you know, maybe closer to, to Olympia uh, because of the, the lack of venues and also the, the real estate problems? Right. The affordability issue. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and what's interesting about that, I mean, at one point, you know, Belltown, right, was uh, a place where you'd find a lot of musicians living, uh, a lot of studio space, a lot of art, right? And then they decided, well, redevelop Belltown, um, put up a bunch of condos and retail spaces and so on and so, so on and so forth. And I don't knock development, right? But I think you have to develop with an eye 
for more than just profitability of those developers, right? You've got to develop with an eye for what kind of city do we want this to be 10, 15, or 20 years from now, right? Right. And I think if you're intentional in some form or fashion um, with that and understanding the role that the creative industry plays in uh, a city's lives, and then then you can develop a city that's vibrant and, and, and supports both um, you know, progress and commerce and the arts. It, it sounds like you're being pulled in a lot of directions um, professionally and also um, charitably, you know, and working with these organizations. I would imagine that, you know, be, serving as chairman of the board is um, typically not a paid position um, for, for, a lot, for example, the Arts Commission. I don't know if it is or not, but nope. no um, money. Yeah. So you're, you're really volunteering a lot of your time. Uh, to sit around um, in meetings and planning sessions and um, it's important work, but you have to make a living. So how, how do you divide your time between volunteer work and Zachy Rose and managing Sir Mix-a-Lot and um, all of these different directions that you're being pulled? How do I divide my time? That's, that's a good question. You know, um, yeah, I guess it would go back to the concept of time, right? <laughs> what is is time linear, right? <laughs> right, right. Um, is it uh, ubiquitous? Is it, um, you know? Um, so, so it's a, it's a tough question for me to answer, only because I just I live, man. You know, I live, um, and I live the things that I love, um, and. Um, you know, there's always room for what I want to do, right? So um, it's not like I would say, okay, I'm going to spend, you know, three hours this week on mixed lot work or, you know, 10 hours on Zachy Rose work. Um, you know, it comes, um, it flows, um, um, and I just, it just, it just works for me. It's, it's hard to explain. Um, it just works for me. I, I use my 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 google calendar a lot now right to, mm -hmm. to just put things in there it's like okay uh we've got a meeting today at noon uh to talk about some zeki rose business um you know i'm going over to thing in uh, uh, uh port townsend which is a new festival that stg is doing and that's this weekend um you know next week i've got some meetings uh, at the paramount i'm on the western states arts federation uh equity board um, so we're talking about our next convening, um, probably in Denver. And so, you know, you just you just do these things uh, um, as they come up. Um, and I give 110% to everything I do. I was on the phone with Mix yesterday for about an hour working on two potential sponsorship and endorsement deals. Um, and it didn't take away from what I needed to do with Zachy Rose. I had a conference call earlier that day with CR. So, yeah. you know, things just, just happen. You just fit things into your life as right. you live. Right. And you don't, you don't put too much thought into it and trying to try, trying to put, exert too much control over it. It sounds like it's just organically, um, you're going with the flow mm -hmm. and you're listening to your, your heart and mm -hmm. you know, where, where you should be at any given time. Um, yeah, it, it, from an you know, you have a s emphasis on information management as mm -hmm. in your master's program. Have you found any tools to help you manage all of these different uh, obligations and uh, technologically, other than the Google Calendar? 
Yeah, well, you know, my iPhone is like, I can't do without it, right? Um, and there are a number of apps that I use Slack, um, Monday, um, again, uh, G of course, Gmail. Um, um, I am uh, about uh, managing finances, so I'm a, a QuickBooks guy. Um, and uh, yeah, so, so there, there are a lot of apps, technological things that I use to you know, make sure that things get done. Um, you know, because at the end of the day, you're committed. You you have commitments to folks, right? Yeah. And so you want to. I want to make sure I um, I uh, uh, live those commitments. Right? Yeah. And so, yeah. I mean, the cell phone is is a blessing for me, man. Because I I work out in the mornings. I go to the gym. I've got my Bose my, no my Beats head headsets on. Um, I can take calls while I'm benching. <laughs> yeah. You know, I just say, hey, I'm at the gym, so forgive the noise. And I just keep working, right? Right. And I do business calls that way. Um, if it's super, super import important where I have to be super quiet, I'll go into uh, like the bike room and talk, you know. But I'm always, I'm just on my, I'm going. I'm not sitting around waiting for shit to happen. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? I'm just living, man. But where do you see, where do you see yourself in 10 years from now? That is a great question because I have been struggling with where I'm going and what I want to do. I live here with my 15-year-old Miles. He's going to be a junior this year. Um, so he'll be heading off to college in two years. And I'm going, okay, so what's, what's next for me, right? Um, you know, my life and my career and my, my friends and connections are primarily here. I have great friends in L.A., family in New York, um, but my life is primarily here. But the question for me is, you know, will I, do I want to stay here, mm -hmm. right? Is there another adventure somewhere? Elle and I went to um, Spain and Portugal back in May, um, and I was away from the U.S. for about two weeks and um, just got a different sense of the world. Um, and for the first time in a long time, I thought, you know, I could probably live outside of the US. Mm -hmm. um, and so uh, 10 years from now, I will either be uh, uh, in a, some warm climate, right? Writing a book, yeah. um, maybe teaching or lecturing. Um, and I'll still be doing the work in the arts. I'll still be on, on a board or a commission, you know, um, helping young people figure out who they are um, and, and how the arts can influence them and how they can express themselves in that way. Um, yeah, so that's that's what I think, you know, and I'll be receiving royalties from the works that I've done, right? So I, I'm not going to be worried for money, right? Right. Or some of the investments that I have. So, um, yeah, that's that's kind of what I see. So um, are, are there any upcoming projects that uh, listeners can uh, look up online and attend or see online that um, you want to talk about? Um, you know, there, there's some things that I'm working on with Mix that uh, if it comes to fruition, it'll be really cool. There's a show called um, Sir Mix-a-Lot's House Remix that uh, we're working on for HGTV. Um, and Mix is an investor in homes. He loves homes. Um, and so it's a, a home remodeling show, much like a, a lot of the others that are out there with Mix's unique spin on it. Um, so that's something that should be, uh, should be happening soon. Sir Mix-a-Lot's House Remix. Um, 
and and that's about it really i mean Elle and i are doing uh some amazing work with some new clients um but it's not something you could you could google and and look up you know right. if you go to zekyrose.com though you can you can see some of the new works that we're doing yeah yeah and if somebody wants to reach out reach out to you online um or directly like what's the best way for them to get in touch with you if they have questions about you know that that i didn't cover during mm -hmm. the interview today you know um i'm i'm a text guy right so <laughs> mix has my phone number on his website right so i get calls <laughs> at two in the morning man uh -huh. like, hey you mix a lot's manager yeah but i'm asleep right now <laughs> <laughs> right so here i'll give you my my phone number and my email so phone is really great uh text is better than calling uh, and that number is 206-790-7227. Okay. And I generally answer texts. Um, and then uh, I use my Gmail. It's like my public uh, uh, email account. So I'm not inundated with stuff on my business account. And that's just first and last name at Gmail. And it's uh, Ricardo Fraser, F-R-A-Z-E-R, at uh, gmail.com. Okay. And are you accepting um, representation of new talent uh, at, at Zachy Rose? Or are you... Are you good for now? You know, I'm really good for now. Um, um, but I I help people, right? I mean, so if you're uh, an artist, you're looking for some advice, some connections, opinions, I always give back because that's what people did for me when I was coming up. So, you know, L says to me sometimes, he's like, man, you're just wasting your time because L's about getting that business done, right? Right, right. <laughs> and I'm like, no, man, I'm just giving back, right? So... Yeah, so people can call with questions. If I can help, then that's that's what I do. If I can direct them in, in a particular uh, direction, that's what I do. Um, if something again moves me in, in my in my spirit, you know, and on that level, uh, that other level, um, um, then I would work with someone if if I get that sense or that feeling. Right. Yeah. 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 So well, that's pretty cool. Thanks for sharing your story with us. Well, thank you for asking me to be here <laughs> it was pretty awesome yeah no it was a great talk thanks a lot ricardo my pleasure thank right. you hey thank you for listening and i hope you enjoyed today's episode of the dream path podcast if so i have a favor to ask can you go to your favorite podcast service and give me a rating and review your feedback is what keeps this podcast going i appreciate your time and as always go find your dream path